0: Hey everyone, welcome back. This is part 25 of our Anti-Hate Conversation Series. For our first time podcast listeners, I'm your host, Mariam, the Anti-Hate Initiatives Project Manager at Council of Agencies Serving South Asians. As always, before I begin, I want to acknowledge that the work of CASA takes place on the traditional Indigenous territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and most recently the territories of the Mississaugas of the New Credit. Um, today, Takaranta, the traditional Mohawk name of this area called Toronto, it means the place in the water where the trees are standing. This area and its surrounding areas have always been, and as we know, are still home to Indigenous people. While we organize here, we remind ourselves that we need to respect and nurture our relationship to this land, as well as to its first peoples, both past and present. This land acknowledgement also serves the reminder that we must work to amplify the voices and implement the rights of Indigenous people. Today's guest is Hawa Yahya Mire. Hawa is an equity consultant and community organizer with over two decades of nonprofit experience, specifically focused on inclusive community development across Ontario and Canada. She's also currently running to be the next federal NDP candidate for York Southwestern. Hawa completed her master's degree in environmental studies at York University. She's also a commentator and columnist whose work has been featured on McLean's, CBC, City TV, amongst others. Welcome, Hawa. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, So why don't you start by introducing yourself and your work and really what you've been up to lately.
1: Sure. It's going to sound a little bit uh, different because what I've been up to is very different than what I've been doing in the past. Um, I've worked in the nonprofit sector for a really long time, um, and I've worked as an equity consultant for uh, just around the last decade, maybe a little bit more. Um, supporting nonprofit organizations but also corporate companies and figuring out um, how to get from where they are to where they'd like to be. So the, the plan and the implementation steps around the vision and the aspiration to, to concrete action and implementation. Much of my work has been focused actually on systemic racism, anti-racism, um, anti-Black racism, um, really through a lens of power. So really having a sense of you know, how decisions are made, who's involved in those decisions and how much of what we do is informed by our broader systems. And so that's my day-to-day work. Uh, I am a community organizer. Um, I you know spend a lot of time uh, in the communities that really are important and matter to me and recently actually just in February I announced um, my uh, bid for nomination and won it uh, so I'm now also the federal candidate uh, federal NDP candidate for York Southwestern which is a neighborhood that I is very close to me I've lived in for a long time my family is still living in. Wow
0: that's amazing um, that's an, that's an amazing trajectory of your career. Um, and, and I can imagine like, specific, specifically because you've been in the community for so long that this must be really close to you and really important to you as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's not usual for people to say that running a political campaign is so much, um, it's very much an act of service, um, an act of service for the community that's also um, helped me grow up right, has Mm -hmm. taken care of me, has supported me, has been a place that has felt like home. Um, Mm -hmm. I think so often we hear of elected officials or politicians running for politics to get more power. Uh, And I'm interested in running um, as as the MP for this riding so that I can uh, figure out how we can more equitably distribute power. And I think that's
0: a bit of a different frame for me coming into this next election. This is off topic, but I do want to know, like, what kind of um, made you take this leap in terms of, um, like, starting this campaign or running for office?
1: You know, the events of the last year, um, both the global pandemic and the shutdowns that have occurred because of that, but also this renewed attention onto systemic racism made it really clear for me that until we change the people in positions of power, we're really not going to drastically change our society. Um, And the people that are in positions of power can't just be there um, to surface level represent us. We can't say we have diverse candidates uh, and do a bit of a checkbox. Our elected officials should not only represent us, but they should represent the policies that are important to us in our lives. And so watching kind of the delay and the disarray of COVID at every level of government has made it made it really clear for me that you know I should do the thing that I encourage uh, those and organizations to do all the time, which is step in if you're not uh, happy with the way things are being run. Throw your hat in the ring, roll mm-hmm. up your sleeves, and get to work. And so um, that's that's what I'm attempting to do in running running uh, in the next election.
0: That's amazing. I wish you all the best um, on your campaign, uh, and I you. hope it comes out successful for you. Um, so in moving on towards um, this episode in in terms of building uh, anti-racist organizations and you someone who has been so involved in the community and someone who has who has done this kind of work um, what does high impact organizational change look like for you yeah so
1: um, this is something I talk about all the time in my work I think we're used to organizational change happening as a result of a couple of employees or a couple of staff members being upset about something and an organization having to make changes as a way to react to what's happening within a work environment. Um, So when I'm talking about high impact organizational change, what I'm referring to is transformational organizational change. So organizations that are not just looking to repeat the status quo or check off a box, but are really interested and invested in changing the culture, the tone, um, you know, the foundations of an organization so that the work they do, the clients they serve, and most importantly, the staff that work there feel like they're contributing every day to some kind of systemic change. And that's, I think if we could think about organizations and companies and our world in that way, we could think about what would it mean not just for you know a prime minister to make a decision that changes all of our lives, but um, we, if we could instead think about how each uh, each and every one of us has can link into um, some kind of system that allows us to change and see that immediate impact on our lives and the lives of those around us, I think we could we have a chance at changing some of the systems that don't work for all of us
0: thank you for that um so yeah. in terms of uh, an anti-racist framework do you think that are there are like key traits or key characteristics that show and ensure that an organization is um is being anti-racist and is employing an anti-racist framework like are, are there like defining factors or defining traits that an organization has
1: Yeah, I don't know if there's ever like concrete defining traits. I think this is something most consultants who are doing this work struggle around. There's no cookie cutter version, but I'll say that um, organizations that I've seen that do really, really well at using an anti-racism framework are organizations that are good at admitting when they've made mistakes or errors and can do that internally, but also externally. Um, organizations that have a thinking or a learning mindset. So we've made this mistake, what do we do differently? How do we experiment differently? What do we learn now so that we can change our practices? Um, Meaning that they're dynamic and not static. So they're always in this learning phase and mode um, because things change, right? Year to year things change, our social context changes. We have to kind of be able to be nimble enough to shift and move. Um, And organizations that have the ability to take a policy and consistently apply it. So all of their practices, their procedures, their method of application is the same from person to person, across teams, across departments. Um, Everybody knows how to get a sick day. Everybody knows how to file a complaint. Everybody knows how to raise an issue in a staff meeting. Um, And and I say that because one of the biggest, um, I think mistakes that organizations make is They write a policy, they get it approved at the board level, they give it to you when you start your job, and then they apply that policy, depending on the manager and their discretion, they apply that policy depending on your relationship to somebody. Do I like you? Do I not like you? Are you making my life difficult? Are you making it easier? Um, But that's not equity, right? At some level, we have to be able to apply things the same across the board while also understanding that some people may need adjustments, but write those adjustments in, be clear about them, be transparent about them. Um, this, you know, if, if we're buddies, we, you get a bit of a pass, that kind of status quo thinking um, mm-hmm. tends to be a place where people make a lot of mistakes.
0: Yeah, uh, and what I'm hearing is that anti-racist frameworks or anti-racist organizations should not be, should not come about as reactionary, but should be there as preventative um, to begin with?
1: Yeah, they should always be there. I think if you're, if you're an organization that just started thinking about anti-racism and an anti-racism framework after Mm -hmm. the murder of George Floyd last summer, um, especially in a city like Toronto, you really haven't been paying attention. That's, you know, one incident in the United States. I can think of hundreds more within our, our city boundaries, um, that have happened, much earlier than that and right up until today. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think we get caught up in like a sense of Canadian exceptionalism, like where we think that we don't, like it's worse in US, but it's like, it's not that bad here. But I think that is not the, we, we know for sure that that's not the case. Um, so I think that's an important thing to frame. Um, so does there does there need to be an overhaul in the way we think about diversity and inclusion to begin with?
1: Oh, without a doubt, you know, when we say diversity and inclusion, I always ask people to think about who are we being diverse for and who is it that we're including? So one, when we say diversity, we're talking about a vast array of social identities. So people need to be exceedingly clear. Are you talking about race? Are you talking about gender are you talking about sexual orientation are you talking about gender identity like what are you talking about what is the exact because you can't use it as a catch-all phrase for everybody who is not the norm or everyone who doesn't fit within our work environment and so I think there needs to be much more nuanced approach to how we think about diversity and inclusion and we really need to think about it in our workspaces like who is it that we're including, who are we trying to include, who is diverse, um, and do the work not with those individuals or people that you're trying to pull in to fill a quota, but with the people that didn't even notice, right, that didn't, when they hear diversity and inclusion, they think, oh, as long as we have a potluck where everyone's culture is represented, we're good to go. Um, yeah. Those folks need a lot of work to think about what What diversity and inclusion might mean for them as as the status
0: quo as people in positions of power. Yeah, I I definitely agree with um, when we think about diversity, we only are thinking about uh, perhaps like one identity or one kind of diversity. We're not thinking about all the different ways that Manifests uh, specifically. I was thinking about um, I was talking to some folks um, who are doing work within the uh, the deaf community, and they were like, we're we're typically the the the, the folks who are always excluded from mm-hmm. anti hate work and anti uh, like diversity inclusion pieces. We're always like. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the diverse like and they were saying that th- that's not diversity and inclusion if you are if you are specifically excluding folks who are disabled, right? So that was that was something that was that was really eye opening for me because like I didn't realize how prominent that is. Like when I when I go into spaces where they say like oh yeah we're like really accepting we're really inclusive, but there is no there isn't specifically they're not pointing out that we are also inclusive of folks who are disabled. And that, and there's this whole issue coming up of um, how, now that we're going back, we have to go back into the office. Um, how is that gonna affect folks who are disabled when their offices, for example, told them that actually we can accommodate you. And the reality is they were able to be accommodated, but they just didn't want to be, right? Um, so I think that's uh, that's a really important way to think about diversity and inclusion, even in the in, in the sense of remote work. Um, so it's, it's mm-hmm. basically in every aspect of... Uh, Work life, even. So, how do you then um, even facilitate, facilitate, or, or like start conversations about racism in the workplace? Um, how does how does that like the conversation happen? How does that start? Who brings it up? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you know, if we if we look at racism as one component of diversity and inclusion, I think. Um, I'll I'll say what I see, which is as a consultant coming into organizations, the people often initiating conversations about racism or anti-racism are usually um, junior level, young um, racialized um, staff without a doubt. Uh, I don't typically see in the time that I have worked with organizations, senior level executives initiating or starting conversations about racism in the workplace. And there's this push from folks who are much more mobilized, know the language, um, know that what's happening, the conditions that they're working in don't don't favor them, who are pushing to see more accountability and equity in the work environment. Um, And so, I mean, by the time typically I come in, the conversation's already been started. Um, And what's happening is that everyone is reacting to the way the conversation's been started, not about the fact that what people have identified as a structural or organizational gap.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we, I think it's challenging to come in at that stage because what you're really doing is having to, to both support, support a group of staff who don't feel like the organization sees them, and also try and quickly, um, you know, accelerate the learning of the senior level executives who have no idea what's happened, oftentimes white, oftentimes older, oftentimes um, have are entrenched in the organization, have been there for a very long time. So I think that can be really complicated and challenging. What I'd recommend um, is for those interested in starting and facilitating conversations about racism in the workplace is um, to... Do it as openly and as transparently as possible. Numbers matter. If you really want a response, unfortunately, the, the workplaces that many people work within, saying it yourself to one person won't typically get much traction. So, um, you know, have conversations with your colleagues and other staff. If you have relationships across hierarchy, like pull in managers or, or executives, talk about what it is that you're asking and be very clear about what you want the final outcome to be and what you're asking for. So this is, I think, really challenging for especially Black and racialized and Indigenous folks is yeah. um, we're, we're also experiencing the trauma of racism very often in the work environment. And so that trauma informs um, our desire to want to see something change, but we haven't always thought through what it is we want changed. And so I think, I think it's really, really important to say, like, what is it that you want? What's the outcome that you're hoping for? Um, Because it could be, you know, you also need a, how do you say it? Like a, like a North star. It's when it gets really difficult, you need to know what it is that you're working towards. Otherwise it can feel really demoralizing and defeating for those who are, who are raising the concerns because it. It won't be easy, you'll do it time and time and time again, and people will Mm -hmm. hear you or ignore you. And in order to, I think, set yourself up um, for success, uh, you need to know what what you're succeeding towards, what success looks like, what you're hoping that outcome might be. And I mean, I would say all the regular, all the usual things, which is like, make sure you have a strong base of support, make sure you have people around you that love and care about you and tell you that all the time. Um, make sure you have also people who will tell you, you know, you're not wrong, what's happening is real, um, because it can be hard to come into an environment where people say that's not happening, so you'll need to find places where people say it is happening, I see it, like I'm with you, you know, so that helps also move you along, Um,
0: yeah. I think I kind of answered that. Yeah, you did, Um, thank you. Has it ever been demoralizing for you to be in that space where for example, like they're not, um, like senior level executives are not like perceptive or they're not, they don't They don't really care. And they're like kind of very apathetic towards it. Has that ever been demoralizing for you personally?
1: Oh, without, without a doubt. You know, when you walk through the world as somebody who's racialized or in my case, a black woman, you know, you, you're, you're defeated, you know, eight times out of 10, somebody says something and you think, oh boy, this again, right, You it brings up all kinds of uh, reminders of things that have happened in the past. I even think about running for office, right? There's, I don't think there's been a single uh, time in a couple, in the last couple of weeks where I haven't thought, oh, pop, really, elected, is it politics really for me? Um, and so I think those are very, it's very normal because the systems we're up against are very, you know, pervasive, are very large, can be incredibly overwhelming, they're hard to navigate, um, and so I think I, I remind myself of the goal, right, which is what I shared with you, um, yeah. which is, you know, I, what is the purpose of what I'm doing, does this serve my greater purpose, and then as somebody who relies quite a bit on faith, I have to also, I, I use faith also as a place to come back to to say, okay, Like, what is this, what I think I'm here to do? If it's a yes, I continue. If it's a no, I go do something, something else. Um, But I, I, again, I rely on the people around me. I rely on faith. And I rely on, you know, that North Star to
0: get me through those moments. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And there's been a lot of uh, kind of like back and forth about what, Um, being the diversity hire means or like Mm -hmm. what that means to fill that quota of like being the Black person or being the South Asian person in a company Um, what are the kind of like two sides to it and does that always does that because there's always like there's people who are like oh like if you're the diversity hire that means you did not really deserve the position because you were just there to fill a quota whereas some folks are like the diversity hire is the only way I will get hired. Otherwise they wouldn't even like look at me twice. So what are the, it's like, it's like, it feels like a double-edged sword. So like, mm-hmm. could you talk more about that?
1: Yeah. And it's a double-edged sword for the person who's being hired, right? Yeah. <laughs> not for not for anybody no. else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, there's a problem um, with being a diversity hire. Anytime any recruiter or any HR person sits in front of two candidates and says, Oh, I guess I'm going to choose this person because we don't have any blank like, people who work here. Whatever racialized people, people who are mm-hmm. living with disabilities, like whatever that might be. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a pro- that's a problem um, because there are tons of and people seem to forget this. There's an incredible amount of exceptionally talented, smart, articulate, and, you know, intelligent um, people who have a number of different social identities. It's the fact that we work so hard. Uh, and our workplaces look, especially the further up you go, get more and more white and get more and more um, age increases. That's, I think that is a falsehood. It creates a sense of like, there just aren't enough people who are smart enough to do this job. And the only way we can get people, um, the only way, uh, you know, we balance that is by just giving them the job because you know, of whatever social identity that they, they have. So mm-hmm. that, that whole premise is flawed. Um, but that flaw fits with the organization, right? Like, I, I do, I completely agree. I think if you have two candidates, exact same qualifications, both could do the job exceptionally well, you should give the position to a person who um, is, you know, uh, has a social identity that would not typically be par- prioritized, without a doubt, because yeah. that's about, giving access to groups of people who have not historically had access in employment that that makes sense to me Um, but the assumption that because you got the job you got it because of your you know race or you got it because of your gender um I think is doesn't doesn't work for me um and I you know I'm always reminded of you know people especially racialized folks often work twice as hard to get you know half the amount of access that that, in particular, white folks get. Um, yeah. And so what I, what I would say to those who think they're being hired, whether they should take on the diversity hire position or not, I would say everyone is going to make decisions based on where they are personally at and what they're able, I think, to, to manage. Um, but for my, from my perspective, I think every opening is an opportunity for you, for your career, for um, you know, maybe the things you wanna do. And so long as that opening serves you or that position serves your broader career visions, mm-hmm. I, I would say, take it, right? Jump in, take it, take, t- use that opportunity to move to the next opportunity that you're hoping for. Um, and that no workplace is perfect, whether you're the diversity hire or not, very few of us are ever gonna find a workplace where we won't encou- encounter racism and we, we and won't encounter other oppressive things, um, we're, I mean, forget workplaces, You'll, you can go to the store, you, know, you can leave the, your workplace and go to Tim Hortons to get a coffee and still experience the exact same kind of hate.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so nowhere is neutral, nowhere is safe, but I think particularly when I think about racialized women, I wanna say, take the opportunities that are in front of you because you don't know always if you you'll get another opportunity but only take the opportunity if it serves you not just because it's there yeah if it's part of your dreams and your success jump in
0: yeah Yeah. I actually really appreciate that answer I think that's that's an important distinction that um if it serves you why not right like uh it doesn't matter how. It doesn't matter like what the specific reason was. I mean, of course, it matters. But I mean, like, if it, if there, if you're getting that opportunity, um, take it and, like you said, like take the next step, right? Like. Um, do a self-serving thing and because oftentimes we there are people who are like made to feel bad about it and it's like no like it was something that was good for me and I don't know if I'm gonna get this opportunity again and I'm more than happy that I took it and I'm able to move forward and move ahead with my career or with my whatever it is that I'm doing by going through this process. Um but yeah thank you thank you for that answer. I appreciate that. Um
1: for sure. And can I add one thing I think that's course, very important. Course. Yeah. Be cautious of who you're, be aware, or at least figure out if if you, if you the position or you had to step on someone to get there. Yeah. Because then there's a different kind of responsibility for you, take it, jump through, move into your career. But if um, a number of other racialized women have been fired from the exact same position for raising concerns about racism, and
0: mm-hmm. you
1: take the opportunity, It'll. It, it's very likely that same dynamic will show up for you too. So to also be mindful of that, like be be aware of the harms that have been done within mm-hmm. a role as you're stepping into it, because you also then, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you, you take that up, right? You Even if it's not yours to own, you begin to take it. it, it people see you and the role and they associate those things together. Um, so it's important, I think, to be mindful of that.
0: Thank you so much for that. I was actually thinking about an issue that came up last year. Not sure if you're familiar, but there was an issue with um, Bon Appétit Mag, which is like the food magazine, mm. um, and a lot of uh, a lot of women, a lot of racialized women specifically, came out saying that they weren't being paid as much as their white counterparts. They weren't being because um, they were all like on video a lot of the time, and so they weren't getting compensated as much as their white uh, colleagues. Um, and so, like, they ended up leaving, and so a lot of other people left in solidarity with them. Uh, but then, but then to kind of like um, heal their image or like try to like bring it back together, they ended up, Bon Appetit magazine ended up hiring more uh, racialized folks um, and like kind of as a way to kind of just fix their image. And I, it really like rubbed me the wrong way because I'm like, you could have easily solved your issue by actually listening to the people you had already hired and who were bringing up these issues. Instead, you let them you let them leave without fixing it or addressing the issue and ended up hiring other people who maybe didn't know about it or like were okay to be hired because it was their like um, first time at this magazine that was like really high up and would do, do really great things for their career. And it just rubbed me the wrong way because it's like these people who you hired after kind of like stepped on the people who weren't even being listened to. So I think that's a really important distinction about being mindful about wh- who you who you kind of disregarded to get to where you are. So I think that's that's important.
1: Yeah, and if we really want to change our world, we can't leave people behind and we can't step on other people to get there. Yeah. We just we can't and I I know People often think, you know, it's, uh, well, I have to think about myself and I have to think about my family. And I'm like, for sure, you have to think about yourself. You have to think about your family. But COVID has also taught us that we're all incredibly connected and interconnected to one another. So I can think about myself in terms of staying inside and social distancing. And I can think about my family. But the reality is, when I go to the grocery store, I'm suddenly interacting with everyone who's there, everyone who has been there, everyone who might come after me. And so my responsibilities to my community are very different than what people might might otherwise believe. And so I really do think that, remember our institutions are set up in a way to treat us all the same. So whether or not we believe we're different from one another, like injustice happens the same way to different groups of people, but you the inst- institutions use the same approach. And so if we forget one another, um, who's gonna remember us, right? Like. I think we're very, we're very much in this together.
0: Yeah, that's that's really true, um, and it COVID has definitely shown that to us as well. That if we're not the ones to advocate for each other, then no one else will, uh, and and that's what we need to be doing. I think that's really important. Um, and uh, so, then how can organizations? I think you've already touched on that, but if you wanted to add anything else, feel free to. Um, just that how can organizations hold space for people of color, women of color, uh, and protect their well being in a professional work environment?
1: Oh, I love this question um, because I'll, I'm going to say very t- practical, tactical things. Um, organizations need to stop talking about and discussing and opening up space for discussion. Um, and actually need to offer practical tools to people. Number one, uh paid sick days for everybody, because we know it benefits it primarily. We know it'll benefit racialized women in the care economy. So racialized women yeah. who are personal support workers, who are taking care of their families, who are in childcare, all of these, all of these things. Um, and every single in the nonprofit sector, most organizations have a line item for mileage or transportation. They didn't use that line item this year because of COVID. Um, I, I would advocate that every single organization take that money and reallocate it to some kind of anti racism work in a way that benefits um, racialized people in a workplace. That's, I mean, that's your, if you want to talk about an equity budget, that's it. That's the line. You can pull that pretty quickly. Um, and to resource people's well being, it's been a tough year, and it's been a really tough year for people who have ex- who experienced systemic racism. Um, and people who live with disabilities and right? it's been it and people who are parents, it's been a tough year for a lot of people. So increase the amount of support you put in people, increase people's benefits, um, increase the amount you give them for mental health days, give people more time off. Like, we've all gone through this very difficult experience, some of yeah. us more difficult than others, and so organizations can put the money into just supporting people and seeing their humanity right now.
0: Yeah. Those are great practical tips um, that I think can actually be put into work, which is amazing. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and now I wanna kind of discuss more about what uh, makes anti-racist work effective. As I have told you that the project that I'm currently working on kind of aims to actually help organizations who are being targeted or their clients or their members are being targeted, spe- specifically on, on through online platforms. Uh, to, because of COVID, um, online hate has increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. And in a recent survey by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and Abacus Data, who whose um, CEOs I actually interviewed last two, two weeks ago, um, they talked about how uh, more than 90% of Canadians that they surveyed believe that. Online hate is a problem, and it's becoming more and more prevalent every day. Um, so, I just want to discuss more about how can we even begin to help build the capacity of these organizations to address these issues? What kind of what kind of tools or content might be helpful in aiding them?
1: Yeah. Um- There's some incredible work being done, I think, by West Coast LEAF around tech-based violence and Susie Dunn, who's a professor and researcher, I think, out of the University of Ottawa. Um, And I reference the both of them because they have been putting forward some really incredible suggestions and ideas around what needs to be done. I think the, the first is we need to think about the complexity of online hate so we know that women um in particular receive an overwhelming amount of hate in real life but also online and we know that when you add things like disability and gender um gender identity and sexual orientation it gets much much worse like it that exponentially very quickly increases. We know when we're talking, like we know we're talking about um, the online hate that's directed towards Muslims, for example. We know that Muslim women in particular who are visibly Muslim, often wearing the hijab, um, have a ton of hate directed towards them. And so I think we need to be more nuanced in who is, who is receiving that hate and what we believe. I know there's a legal definition of hate, but I think we need to be a little more clear around how hate shows up online, not just the legal definition of hate, but what it shows up as. So that people have a really clear sense of, of what that means, um, and so I think I think organizations can do a lot. There could be stronger regulations for some of these social media giants, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of these companies. Um, I think Canada can do a much stronger job at regulating their their or t- regulating them and making sure they know their responsibilities in taking down images or taking down posts like right now if somebody says something racist you can put a report in and nothing happened nothing can happen that post can stay up for days and days and days and uh, you know by then it's been screenshotted and people have shared it so it doesn't matter if the you know the company takes it down um, but they I mean we're talking about tech companies they have the ability to screen words and terms yeah. and just refuse to post them and say they're pending approval So I think we can, we can do more there because these are corporations. They're not people like we're people using tools, but these are corporations that could manage these tools differently. Um, And the second thing I'd say is I hope organizations don't move to an over-reliance on the police when we're already very, very aware of the fact that like um, our policing institutions, whether it's like police, whether it's CBSA, whether it's, you know, CSIS or intelligence service agencies, we know that those agencies over-police particular communities. And so um, there's the risk that um, communities who already have a large amount of hesitation and fear around these policing institutions um, are not going to report or are not going to disclose the hate that they're experiencing because they don't want to engage with the police or with. when I think about Muslim communities or with CSIS or with the CBSA those who may be migrants so um yeah i I just hope we don't it it just doesn't move to like call this police number and we'll deal with this hate uh i hope we come up with alternative methods for people to share what's happening for them that don't rely on the police
0: yeah that's been one of the One of the aspects that we've had to kind of really explore better in terms of what are the avenues um, clients have or members have or just generally folks have or organizations have when it comes to online hate because as we know mistrust in the police is only growing and rightfully so and so and so what are the other avenues that we can provide um organizations or people to to do or what what methods to take when they come across online hate that is not to do with the police or bringing in the police Um, so i think that that's that's an important issue that that is difficult to navigate but there are so many um non there are so many community resources that we can point to instead of saying, oh, just, and all, a lot of the times what even happens is like the the kind of checklist needed to qualify uh, an, an an online hate issue to be reported to the police is already really like, it has to be really, really extreme or has to be really, really exactly. threatening. So it's not, even, it's not even practical for like the day-to-day online hate that most people face. So I think there needs to be other issues that need to be like, navigated and explored in terms of what else we can do um, to help that. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. I think that was everything on my end. Is there anything else you would like to add or any other final comments you would like to make?
1: Um, no, I think I think that's most of what I would what I would share. Um, I, I might just say, you know, I'd encourage people to be really bold about the kind of work that they want to do and to be really innovative there's so much room. Um, I think we have a current, we have an opening right now um, that allows us to do work in a way that we haven't done it before, or imagine our workplaces in a way that we maybe haven't imagined in a long time. And so I'd really encourage people to like, come up with new, innovative, creative ways to change the systems that we're, we're living within.
0: That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Hawa, for joining us today. It was great talking to you. You're very welcome. Thank you again for tuning in for this episode of the Anti-Hate Conversation Series. Join us again in two weeks as we continue to explore the issue of online hate.